Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Nikias Duncan is back in the building. And we are going to talk about the NBA. Finally, this podcast is back to at least being uh, probably more times than not an NBA podcast as opposed to just a draft podcast or a podcast where Matt Penny and I give our random musings. Uh, today, the idea with Nikias is going to be he is going to teach me what has happened in the NBA over the course of the last four weeks. Now, I'm not coming from, like, nowhere on this. Like, I have watched the NBA in the last four weeks. But there have been teams that, like, I haven't watched a ton of, right? Like, before last night and their weird, kind of fun, kind of awesome game against the Denver Nuggets, I probably had not watched Portland for, like, four weeks or so. Um there are some teams at the bottom of the standings I have not watched for a while. I haven't watched the Lakers for a while because LeBron was out uh, and has been out, and it's just kind of not instructive for me to watch the Lakers without LeBron. So this is going to be a fun podcast. Nikias, how you doing, man? I am doing pretty well. I am honored that you had me on for the first NBA episode in a while, so I'm happy to be here. Uh, also happy and willing to get you up to speed on what's been happening over the past month or so. So I had to have you on because a, I feel like the podcast you've been doing with Steve Jones, the dunker spots just been super fun and super awesome. And I've really enjoyed what you guys are doing. And second, like, I feel like you're a good person who has their hand on the pulse of the league in a way that, uh, in a way that some people just don't like, I thought you'd be a perfect person to have on for this. I appreciate that, man. Uh, very high praise. I will take it uh, reluctantly because I don't <laughs> deal with praise well, but I will take it nonetheless. So the first question I have generally is, do you feel like the NBA title race has shifted dramatically over the course of the last, let's say, month or so? Um, LeBron James is obviously out for the Lakers. Anthony Davis is out for the Lakers. Uh Utah, Phoenix, the Clippers, and the Denver Nuggets are all ahead of them in the standings. Brooklyn is dealing with a wide swath of injury issues depending on the night. And now for a little while, it's going to be James Harden out of commission. So do we feel like there's been a tangible shift in opening this thing up for basically everyone across the league? Uh, I don't think so like I don't think it's any more open than what it was like with the Lakers in particular Mm -hmm. the regular season has never really mattered to them to begin with so the assumption has always kind of been hey as long as they're healthy once they hit the playoffs I don't think anyone is going to comfortably bet against a LeBron James led Anthony Davis co-starring Lakers squad in the west so like I don't think that much has changed in the east there are questions about everyone and there have been um with the Nets, the offense has been fantastic. The defense, not so much. Um, Milwaukee's still trying new things. They've been very good, but it still feels a little bit wonky at times. And with Philadelphia, they've been very good, but half-court questions remain, and Joel Embiid has missed time, and then he's come back, and Ben Simmons has missed time. So I think coming into the year, it was pretty open, or relatively open. And because of all the injuries and because of COVID, you just haven't been able to get a real sense of who has solidified themselves in like those top tier teams, if that makes sense. No, I think that that's the impression I've gotten over the course of the season for sure. I will say the one team that has kind of changed my priors a little bit is the Clippers. And 
I've watched the Clippers a few times over the course of the last month. And if I remember correctly, I believe they're 17 and five since the All-Star break. Uh, they've only lost once, I think, in their last, it's like 10 games and it's a three point loss in Philly. Uh, this team is really good, and it's in large part a different team now than what it was coming into the year and what they were in the playoffs last year, because Paul George seems to have like kind of found that extra gear that he had in that great last season, for instance, in Oklahoma City, where he finished third in the MVP race. Like He looks being back to that Paul George, which makes me actually think that that that's the big shift in the title race to me that we just hadn't really seen yet. Like we can talk about James Harden and James Harden injury is like going to absolutely be an enormous part of where this goes and how healthy the Lakers are is absolutely going to be an enormous part. But like, we don't know how much that's actually going to affect the playoffs. Paul George being back to like full health in his bag in the way that he is and just looking unbelievable to me that's like the biggest thing that I've seen over the course um, of the last little while in my time that I've, you know, kind of been obviously splitting more toward the college side than the NBA side. I definitely agree with that. I think what's really changed for the Clippers over the past month or so, it has been Paul George stepping up, Um, not necessarily driving more, but driving with more purpose, Um, being Mm. more intentional about getting downhill and pressuring the rim. But I think that's been the real question mark with the Clippers all season long. Like, the offense has been elite. The defense got out to a shaky start, but they've been firmly good. And the assumption there is that it's going to be a little bit better once they narrow down the rotation and they have a consistent dosage of Paul George Kawhi because they, you know, they've been missing a handful of games here and there. Um, the offense has just felt like you're just kind of waiting on the wheel to come off a little bit because the numbers were always great. They're having a ridiculous shooting season in terms yeah. of three-point percentage. But they didn't get to the free throw line. They weren't generating many attempts at the rim. So with Paul George playing more aggressively, that alleviates that concern. And the addition of John Rondo, a deal that I, yeah. on the podcast, on the timeline, just crushed the Clippers for doing. Like, why would you do this? Like, Lou Williams isn't who he is, but I think Lou Williams is better. And you gave up Williams and picks and cash. Why would you bring in Rondo? And Rondo has flat out shut me up since he's been <laughs> in a Clipper yeah. uniform. He has unlocked the level of unpredictability in their half-court attack that they, that, I mean, they needed. They still don't have your... You know, they don't have a Giannis-type rim, pre- rim pressure guy or a Zion-type or anything like that. But with Rondo being able to fit in these tight window throws almost on a whim, they've unlocked something else with their off-ball cutting. And now it doesn't have to be a design look. They can generate rim pressure just by filling space now. And once you complement that with the shooters that they have, the offense isn't just elite. It's lethal. And you don't know where the attack is coming from. There isn't a really great scheme per se, to stop the slowdown the Clippers. Like, if you switch everything, you still have Paul, George, Kawhi, and now you have a guy in Rondo that can make passes against the slip if you are trying to switch. So, they've just become a more multifaceted offense, and I think that they are the team that's really catapulted themselves up into that elite tier. Yeah, the Rondo deal is interesting, because I totally agree with you in that I was surprised that they did it, and 
I am also surprised that it's worked as well as it has. But if you kind of think about it, like just the one thing that we've talked about with this Clippers roster construction over the course of the last two years is that they've needed a ball mover. They've needed someone who makes like really quick decisions. They've they've needed someone who uh, can just put pressure on the defense via the pass because a lot of their guys, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, um, you know, even like Marcus Morris, you know, uh, Serge Ibaka wasn't there last year, but Serge Ibaka is certainly not a passer, right? Patrick right. Beverly is not your traditional passing point guard. Uh, Reggie Jackson can dribble the air out of the ball at times, and Rondo can too, don't get me wrong. But getting a guy like Rajon Rondo in who can make that elite level pass, kind of like you're saying, it really has unlocked something in their offense, I think, since they made that deal. And then you pair him sometimes with Nikola Batum, who's also a really good ball mover. Mm-hmm. And it really works well, I think. It really, really works well. It juices them. And now, again, they can do a little bit of everything on offense now. And defense, even with the defensive rating kind of being middling for most of the year, their starting lineup, when they did have, you know, Batum at the four and they had their two wings, you have Patrick Bailey out there. Like, the defensive rating for that starting lineup was like sub 100 for a while. I haven't checked those numbers in a minute since Patrick Beverly's missed so much time this season as well. But their core guys can defend. So even the team defensive rating isn't necessarily reflective of what they can be. And so now you answer, or at least partially answer the offense question. They very well may be the most dangerous team in the West if the Lakers aren't fully healthy. So the the last thing I'm going to say about Rajon Rondo is if he ends up being like a 24, 25 minute per game point guard in the playoffs, which I don't know. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if he ended up taking a lot of Patrick Beverly's minutes when Beverly is back. Um, you know, wouldn't surprise me if he ends up taking a large majority of Reggie Jackson's minutes uh, at mm. a certain point, especially in the playoffs. I kind of think we need to really have the Hall of Fame conversation about Rajon Rondo. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. Like... Uh, significant part like honestly probably the third best player maybe the fourth best player on a title team last year uh has a couple of all nba seasons continually gets drastically better in the playoffs i know that his counting numbers aren't gonna like you know wow anyone necessarily but Mm. man it's gonna be tough i think once you start looking at the impact on winning that he has if he can help this Clippers team win a title. Uh, it, it's it's going to be interesting. Rajon Rondo is a fascinating character within like the tapestry of basketball to me. Um, just how everyone decided they hated Rajon Rondo when he went to Dallas, and it seemed like his <laughs> career was like on its last legs uh, in that 2016 year in Sacramento, where he actually led the NBA in assists, but like none of it, it was, was so fake. Effective basketball, yeah. Um, and then he goes to Chicago, helps them in the playoffs, goes to New Orleans, helps them in the playoffs, um, and then has these two years in Los Angeles the last couple of years, and it you know, it's been really good. Like I I'm I'm fascinated by Rajon Rondo. I don't know where I fall with his Hall of Fame case because you are right that he has helped quite a few playoff teams. I mean, going back to the Boston days, um, both L.A. teams right now. But I don't know. It just doesn't feel like he's done enough individually, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, no, I agree. all-NBA burst, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I can get that. I just have to examine it a little bit closer. He doesn't feel Hall of Fame to me, but I don't know. Like, the requirements are the requirements, and they aren't necessarily the tightest amongst the major sports. So... Maybe he will if he can help the Clippers win their first ever title. It'd be four-time All-Star, four-time All-Defense, only one-time All-NBA. 
but he if they win the title this year which is putting which like look they probably have like a 10 percent chance to win the title given how many contenders there are maybe 15 um mm-hmm. if they were to win the title he'd be a significant part of three nba champions in all likelihood um mm-hmm. just assuming that his role continues to be what it is with the clippers that's fascinating to me that's an interesting interesting question with rajon rondo but let's move on to the other team in the west that i just enjoy watching so thoroughly and that is the phoenix suns i know that you've watched the suns like a crazy amount this year like i feel like you watch most suns games is that right yeah i have watched an unhealthy amount of phoenix games yeah every every time phoenix is on i feel like i see you tweeting about it it's like yeah i am watching the suns right now of course i am (laughs) what are we chris paul it's devin booker it's a bunch of spain pick and roll like you you got me in yeah totally like they just run ridiculous offense they're really good on defense because deandre ayton has figured some things out on defense over the course of his career and i'm not saying he's like elite top five nba defensive center in the nba or anything but he's like very clearly above average defensive center now uh mikhail bridges is awesome defensively chris paul's communication out there like they're constantly talking it just feels like Mm -hmm. his injection has really helped their togetherness and this was a team that by the way their togetherness in the bubble was very evident by the eight no run and then you add chris paul to that and it really felt like they took it to the next level in terms of the way that they act as one out there and then on top of it, I think that Devin Booker's defensive improvement this year, because Phoenix is one of the teams, again, like within these last four weeks that I've made it a point to watch a decent amount of because I really, really like this team. Mm-hmm. Devin Booker's defensive improvement has really gone under the radar. Like he is no longer a sieve. There are times where I even look at him and I'm like, oh, no, holy shit. He's like locking his guy up now. Like it's not even a joke anymore like he's not he's not just getting blown by he's not falling asleep on defense away from the ball i'm not saying again that he's like an above average defender but he's very clearly improved to the point where he is no longer a liability out there in any way shape or form and honestly is a part of why this defense has been as effective as it's been for the most part i would agree with that i would say having a guy like chris paul that can take some pressure off of him offensively has allowed him to have more energy for the defensive end. That's a very simple point to make, but it's important. Yep. Um, as he's gained more experience, there are less of the, le- the off-ball lapses. And I think you kind of eliminate some of those just by virtue of the scheme in general, because Phoenix does still switch quite a bit. Yep. And I think there are less things to navigate when you just say, hey, if, some, if two guys are over here, I'm just going to pick up this one. And you have a communicator like Chris Paul. You have other really good defenders around you. I mean, playing with Jay Crowder, he just came from Miami. You know Miami does a little bit of everything. So I think it's been a little bit of an easier adjustment for him. And just on the ball, like he has no problem taking on tough assignments. Like he's a very prideful player. I mean, you see that on the offensive end. But defensively now this year, he's taking on like elite wings and doing his thing. He'll switch on to a smaller guard and do his thing and hold his own. So I've been impressed. I've been very impressed with that. What has been your favorite part of the Phoenix Suns this year? Just because, again, you watch them seemingly every game. <laughs> uh the easy answer would just be yes, but if I had to narrow <laughs> if I had to narrow it down, I think it is the defense for me. Yeah. Because they they just move together. Like there is it's so it's so textbook. Like Mikael Bridges is incredibly fun to watch just hound guys. Like Chris Paul 
communicates everything. He can still fight over screens. He's certainly not the New Orleans version of himself, but he can still fight over. But otherwise, if there is a switch and there's a mismatch somewhere, he's communicating that, making sure the back line is in order. He's helping out with those scram switches, even if he's not directly involved. Like He's just incredibly fun to watch. Um, I'm always interested to watch DeAndre Ayton, depending yeah. on what Phoenix wants to do defensively. If he's in a drop, like is he getting to the level? How is he playing in that gap? If he is switching, like how well is he moving his feet? Because depending on what night you watch him, sometimes he can slide with a point guard. Sometimes the hips are stiff and he gets blown by. So that's always an adventure. But just in terms of the team overall, like they move on a swing, they move on a string. They communicate well. They're physical. They force you into tough shots. Like it's very textbook stuff. Yeah, the, the DeAndre thing is fascinating to me because I feel like early in the season. Like back in like January and February, even there was just a lot of inconsistency there. He was still trying to figure out that he has to play hard every night. Almost it felt like at times, mm-hmm. um, like that he has to be like engaged every night. Otherwise, Chris Paul is just gonna like. I will say this: like Chris Paul has done a good job of not just like tearing him a new one. Like Chris, it feels like on the court has been very communicative and like instructive with him. And I think that long term, it's really gonna help DeAndre. Mm-hmm. But there have been times where he just hasn't been there. Like you kind of mentioned like the hips just looking like they just can't flip in the way that they have to. He can't drop his hips in the way he has to. And right. that his feet sometimes look stuck in the mud. But like even offensively, like there are nights where he just like doesn't roll hard. Right. But mm-hmm. I feel like over the course of the last and Jackson Frank just wrote like a really good story on this. Um, I'll just shout out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like over the last like month or so, like in the five Phoenix games that I've watched, DeAndre has been really good. He's just been there. He's been active. He's been aggressive. Um, it felt like he was trying to make more of an impact offensively. Uh, and he's rolling harder, which is like a big thing with DeAndre. Like, don't just, you know, short roll pop because you're not a great passer yet don't just uh float on the perimeter after a ball screen roll hard to the rim force that tagger to come across because if deandre is rolling hard to the rim the tagger has to come across every time right because he can just out high point the ball if they don't um force that tagger to come across and i feel like that's been a big part of why phoenix's offense has been as successful as it's been just his further engagement and doing the little things every single night versus and then also on top of it like his performance has been better like he's been really good over the course mm-hmm. of the last like month month and a half yeah Aiden has been Aiden it has been and is wildly important for Phoenix which is again a, an obvious thing to say but I think offensively if you had a question mark about Phoenix it's kind of similar to the Clippers thing the where they trend jumper heavy like Chris Paul isn't the guy that gets to the rim yep. that often Devin Booker can get to the rim and has gotten to the rim a little bit more recently. At least that's what it feels like. But he loves to operate in the mid post and he'll post you up. He'll go to those fadeaways or if he's playing against drop and pick and roll. He'll pull up from the elbow area just like Chris Paul would. So they don't have that dynamic rim threat on the ball. And I think that's where DeAndre Ayton kind of fits the mold. Because similar to the Clippers, or similar to Utah even, if you switch against them, you can kind of grind the offense to a halt. They still have very good players, can still execute, but that's kind of the book on a team like Phoenix, on a team like Utah. Like, switch, keep the ball in front, dare them to beat you. You can't really switch against DeAndre Ayton with the way that he's been playing over the last month and a half. 
Yep. Because, you know, Chris Paul's fantastic passer can hit Aiton on that slip. And if he's rolling hard, he's either going to roll into a dunk or if it's a clean switch, he has a small on him. And now he's burying him under the basket instead of floating around that 12 to 14 foot range. So it's just adding a different dynamic to the offense. And now it's either send help or DeAndre Aiton, who feels like he's shooting 90 percent at the rim at this point. He's just getting an easy one against a small guy. So him playing with that level of force and playing with that level of energy, it helps solve Phoenix's flaw in the half court. Again, not a team that gets to the rim a ton, not a team that gets to the free throw line at all. So if Aiton can alleviate that with just rolling hard, just doing the things on the margins like that, quick duck-ins, that helps, and you know what this team can do defensively. And that's a winning formula. I haven't... We're going to talk about the MVP race uh, later on, but... I haven't seen Chris Paul's name come up a ton. I don't think he should be like in the mix to win the MVP, but I do kind of think that he should be in the mix at the bottom end of ballots. What do you think of that? Uh, I would agree with that. I think he's just done so much to help everyone. Like This is just kind of what he does from a leadership perspective, from an on-court coaching perspective, just the way that there's traffic on both ends of the floor. He is wildly important to what Phoenix wants to do on both ends. So I think he should I think he should be up there. I mean it's a similar effect to what he had in OKC. Like he just makes things make sense. Like he floats with the young guys. He's able to grill the older guys, get those guys together. Um if Chris Paul is directing your offense, you're gonna play slow. You're gonna grind out possessions, and that's what Phoenix has done. So I think I would probably argue he's been Phoenix's most consistent player, if not their best player. Because Devin Booker has ran hotter than Chris Paul at points this year. Yeah. But I think even recently, Booker's been kind of in a slump in terms of the jumper. Chris Paul is, you know, to steal a phrase from Matt Moore, I think you say it about LaMarcus Aldridge all the time, but Chris Paul is a metronome. Yeah. Like, you, he's going to give you, like, this year, what, 18 and 8 or whatever it is. Like, he's going to direct traffic. He's going to communicate on defense. He's going to give you one, how the heck did he steal that type play on defense? Like, He's been so consistently good for them. Um, if you have the name of MVP for Phoenix, I think it is him. The other team that I want to talk about in the West is Denver. Uh, Jamal Murray going down obviously changes their trajectory quite a bit because right after the trade deadline when they acquired Aaron Gordon this team looked like it was a real title contender at that point and it's going to be hard to sell me on them winning a title without Jamal Murray now that he's out for the year do you kind of fall in line with that as well yeah without Murray it just becomes so tough like there are ways for Denver to kind of like, I don't think the offense is going to suffer a ton in terms right. of, like, like offensive rating or something like that. I mean, Nikola Jokic is just absurd, and he can create offense out of thin air either for himself or for others. I mean, all you have to do is cut, and if you are if you have an inch on your man, the ball's going into your hands, and you have a layup opportunity. So there are ways for them to kind of scheme those dribble handoffs and get similar looks, but the level of... I guess just the pull-up shooting for Murray is such a trump card. Denver missing that, I think it just it just knocks them down to that second tier instead of the first tier that we were starting to see like after they acquired Aaron Gordon because there's no answer for Nikola Jokic, but you do need to have something else. And I don't know if you want to trust Michael Porter Jr. like legit creating his own offense 
with more than two or three dribbles. And like Will Barton isn't Jamal Murray. Um, Faku Campazo is not Jamal Murray in the slightest. So I think missing that kind of perimeter creator just knocks them down a peg. So yeah, the Campazo thing I think has been helpful for them. Like it's good to have another guy there, uh, just in his absence, right? It's right. good to have um, both Monte Morris and Campazo behind Jamal Murray. Like when Campazo originally signed there, I was kind of like. So he's coming over to be like the third point guard in Denver. And now this has happened and ends up being like a perfect circumstance, like a perfect storm for him. Um, It's interesting kind of looking at because Jamal Murray had missed four games before he got hurt and then plays the game against Golden State where he tears his ACL and then has missed four games since. So we have like a pretty decent like eight or nine game sample here of what uh, Michael Porter Jr. looks like with Jamal Murray missing time and it's been pretty good like he's averaging 22 points and eight rebounds a night the increased usage has been clear he's shooting 16 times a game uh I think that the three-point shooting is obviously kind of taking a tick down because he's self-creating more of those Mm. three-point shots it feels like like he's shooting 36 percent from three over the course of his last nine games but like well, A, Michael Porter Jr. is not a 43% three-point shooter. That's like one of the best shooters in the league. And Michael Porter is a really good shooter, but he's not that. Um, right. So that was always going to come down. But B, if he's at 36% self-creating threes versus 40% on like wide open catch and shoot threes, which is what he often had, uh, surrounded by Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic, I'm, I'm fine with that. Like, I think that's if he's averaging 22 and 8 while shooting 36 from three and 55 from the field. Mm -hmm. I mean, they might be able to make this work, but they're going to have to focus on the defensive end in a way that just hasn't quite happened this year. Like it's going to have to be like, they're going to have to be a top eight defense or so. And they're more of like a middle of the pack defense. And that's, that's going to be tough. I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say they've definitely tried to um, tried to fix that. Again, with the acquisition of Aaron Gordon, obviously that's the big one. Um, we're seeing more P.J. Dozier minutes. Um, I think last night we saw some Shaq Harrison. Yep. Austin Rivers is there, and he has the history of defending one through three in Houston, just kind of switching all over the place. He's not a lockdown defender by any stretch. But he's a solid one, so I think that helps. And ultimately, you need guys that can just kind of get in the jerseys of offensive players just because – they're going to play Jokic high. Like, you want to push the ball handler out as far as you can. So if you have those guys there, it kind of eliminates the margin for error a bit. So top eight still feels a little bit lofty, to your point. Yeah. But if they can hang around 11 or 12 instead of, like, 14 to 16, then maybe. Because the other part is just going back to the offense. Like, Nikola Jokic, he may just be that good. Right. And that's the next thing i wanted to get to i mean like look i get that stephen curry has been great i get that there have been a lot of really good players in the nba this year like Nikola Jokic is for sure the mvp right like there's just like not so far based off of what we've seen i'm not saying that things can't change over the course of the next you know what 14 games or so mm-hmm. that we have left so we have like about a fifth of the season left or so um i'm not saying that things can't change over these last 20 percent of the season but Nikola Jokic is the MVP right now like it's like kind of not even really all that close to me like everyone gets excited when they see Stephen Curry you know go out and rip the soul out of Philadelphia earlier this week right 
and people get pumped whenever, you know, Joel Embiid uh, throws up like a half quarter that almost goes in or you know, a full quarter that almost goes in. Um, and he's been great in clutch as well. But like Nikola Jokic has been doing that all season. Like it feels like every single week he has some unbelievable clutch moment where he just like backs down someone and finishes on the block or throws this unbelievable pass or, uh, you know, shoots one of those weird ass one legged fadeaways that look like they're going to hit the fucking rafters before they go in. Like it's been a full season of end of game highlights for Nikola Jokic. In addition to the fact that he's averaging 26, 11 and nine this year and has improved defensively and is like carrying the load to such a ridiculous extent. Like this is a really good MVP, like set of candidates, but I, I think that Nikola Jokic is just very clearly the choice right now, right? Yeah, that's that's the thing. Like he has he has the basic stats, like twenty six, eleven, and nine. Like that's just flat out absurd. He has the efficiency stats, like he's shooting well from just about everywhere. The impact numbers are there. Denver is pretty firmly a playoff team in the Western Conference. And then even if you want to get into the hair splitting, like the record kind of knocks out Steph. And you can quibble about how fair or unfair that is. As great as Joel Embiid has been, he's missed, what, 18 games, 19 games, somewhere in there. And, like, all of that isn't his fault. But in a season like this one, to where it's so random with who's going to be out and who's going to be playing, the fact that Nikola Jokic has been consistently available, I think that has to count for something. I don't know how you argue against Jokic in good faith at this point. Yeah, like... And look, like I tried to think about it, like I really tried to play devil's advocate um, to say that this thing was open. And again, look, we have 20 percent of the season or so left. Maybe that changes. Right. But right now, man, like (laughs) this dude is just on fire and he's been on fire since the jump, despite the fact that this team went deep in the playoffs and like theoretically had this shortened off season and we've seen how as you said uh this season has wrought a lot of damage in terms of injuries and in terms of guys getting knocked off the court for him mm-hmm. to just like he's the metronome i feel like you know we, we talked about it with chris paul like chris mm-hmm. paul's played i think all but one or two games this year but like nikola Jokic every night 26 11 and 9 consistently plays 35 minutes a night like outside of the Tibbs division of just throwing <laughs> RJ Barrett and Julius Randle on the court at all times Nikola Jokic is leading the NBA in minutes right now um he's really third but we're not going to count the Knicks guys because Tom Thibodeau is not a real NBA coach when it comes to uh load management <laughs> um fair enough what he's done in a season that is this shortened, that is this strange, it just can't, it has to be Jokic. I can't see a world where we're really having a conversation about other people. Yeah, like it would have to be some combination of Jokic missing time and or the Nuggets sliding without Murray all of a sudden and Embiid finishing the season and the Warriors making a run to where they've end up in like five or six somehow and curry continues to average 40 like he's averaging in april and even with that like just the totality of the season it it just kind of has to be Jokic. i feel like if you told me that 
Dallas got to the point where they were like <clears throat> pretty close in record to Denver and like very clearly made the playoffs like as a top four seed. Cause right now they're the seven seed. They are, I believe like six games behind Denver with 15 ish to go. Right. I think that uh, Dallas has exactly 15 to go. So if somehow Dallas would like jump into that top four range, no one is talking about Luka Doncic, but he's been like a monster over the course of the last, you know, what, let's say two months, I would say. Like, it's just been flat out unbelievable. Mm-hmm. You could maybe swing me that way. You could maybe swing me if Stephen Curry brought Golden State into the non-playing round. Um, right now, they're ninth. They're behind Memphis, Dallas, and Portland in sixth. And they're three and a half games behind Portland. Like, you could convince me then maybe that it's a conversation. Um, in the East, yeah, I feel like if Jokic doesn't miss time, like, the sheer tonnage of quality that you're getting from those extra, like, 18 games that Jokic has played as compared to Joel Embiid is a real big thing. Uh that can't go ignored in an MVP race, especially in a season of like truncated weirdness. So mm. I, I think that I would still take Jokic there. Um, but maybe, maybe Embiid like leads them on like a 15 and 0 run or, you know, 12 and 3 run or whatever, or 12 and 2, because I think they have 14 left. And they just like run away with the East and maybe it's a conversation then. But like it would take something. I think my point is it would take something incredibly unlikely for this Mm -hmm. to happen. You know what I mean? Like Milwaukee would need to go on like a 13 and two run in their final 15 games, despite the fact they've lost back to back games now to Memphis and Phoenix and Giannis who just went down with like a weird foot cramping, like strange thing. Uh, two nights ago, if I remember correctly, um, mm-hmm. like he would need to go supernova at the end of the year and average like thirty a night because he's at like twenty eight and a half right now and go like thirty eleven and seven or something like that. Like it, it, it's just like incredibly unlikely to me that anyone is gonna surpass what uh, what Nikola Jokic has done this year. He, he's absolutely a staggering performer. It's been incredible for him. Just to the Milwaukee point, I actually wrote a piece earlier this season talking about Giannis's MVP case because I felt like, you know, midway through the year, he had been very, very underrated with Milwaukee doing as many different things that they're doing on yep. both ends of the floor and still being, I think at that point, I think Milwaukee was second in the East and Giannis was putting up ridiculous numbers still. I was like, well, hey, if you want to make the top of the conference really good numbers, really good impact numbers, and also placed, you know, both sides of the ball at an elite level, which seems to be the Embiid case over Jokic right now. If you want to eliminate the games, it's, hey, Embiid's an elite defender, and Jokic is good if you really watch him. And if you don't, then you definitely don't think he's a positive, which, I mean, that says more about the viewer, but you get the point I'm making. Like, hey, maybe Giannis has a case too, but Giannis has also missed some time. So you can't even make that strong of a case for him anymore. And like you said, it would take like a 13-2 and two finish and Giannis going supernova. And then you would be trying to put him over Embiid and Jokic at that point. So let's just give the award to Jokic. Like, it's fine. We can acknowledge the other great players, Embiid, Curry. We can do that. But it, it's Jokic. And that's okay. The two games here that are coming up. One is tonight. We're recording on Thursday. And one is on Saturday. They play Philadelphia in a back-to-back in Milwaukee. Uh, 
that's actually now like an incredibly critical set of games for these two teams. And I am fascinated to see these two. Um, right now, Milwaukee is three and a half games behind Philadelphia. If they can sweep that series at home, which, you know, probably a 25% chance that that happens, given that it's a home series for them. It's going to get fun. The top of the East is going to get really fun because uh, those top three teams are going to really try and push, I think, for home court advantage uh, in this final little run of the playoffs. And uh, I'm really interested to see where the top of the East goes. But to me, I want to talk about the middle of the East, if we're going to talk about the East at all, because... We need to talk about the Knicks, obviously. The Knicks doing this, like, are you as blown away as I am by the Knicks being this good? Let me tell you, I am the Dunker Spot host that is very surprised by what the Knicks have done this year. Uh, Steve has been on them all year. Uh, But, yeah, I I just, I was kind of expecting the defense to slip a little bit after their start to the season. Like, they are very much selling out and rotating all over the place. I just figured at some point the three-point percentage was going to creep up and that was going to knock them from, like, I think they were third at some point. Maybe they knocked them down to eighth or ninth, and they're still a good defense, but they're not what they are. But that has stayed steady. I've questioned the offense. Um, I just didn't see it from a shooting perspective. I didn't think Julius Randle would continue to be an elite shooter, and he's continued to shoot well. R.G. Barrett has shot well. So, like, the offense itself isn't great, but they get enough from those guys and defense kind of carries them home so I I'm very surprised that we're this late into the season and the Knicks are like firmly a playoff team well and it's weird because yeah they don't have enough shooting because in reality they don't take enough threes right but it feels like they're guys outside of RJ now RJ still doesn't get any respect from distance but teams are starting to come out on Randall more I feel like on these three-pointers Reggie Bullock can just shoot, right? Like, Reggie Bullock's an elite shooter. Um, Right. Like, Burke shot 40% from three. Uh, Teams still give Derrick Rose, like, a little bit of respect there, which is weird. Um, Maybe it's just, like, the respect inherent within Derrick Rose, which is why they do that. Quickly shoots 39% from three. Um, They just kind of have a lot of guys that, even though they don't take a ton, if you leave them open, they make them, and that ends up, leading to teams like rotating out onto them as opposed to just playing like solidly in the paint. And then the other part of it is like, it's just really fucking hard to stop RJ Barrett from getting to his left hand and like getting in the paint. Like it's really hard to stop Julius Randall from getting to his left hand and getting into the paint. Um, They do a really great job of starting those guys on the right side of the floor, running them in like dribble handoffs, running them in uh, actions where they're already moving. And then letting them get ahead of steam and get downhill and get into the paint with that left hand. And once they do that, they're both really good passers. They're both good with an in-between like floater game. And they both can finish at the rim at like a reasonable level. Their offense is just, their offense makes sense with what their personnel is in a way that you don't always see even in the NBA. And just to add on to the offense point, it's such a small thing, but it's an important thing. When they do run those actions, they run those actions hard. Yep. Like, so many teams in the NBA, even if it's like some flex action or something, it's essentially a ghost cut because there's not really any contact being made or they just kind of jog into those actions. Like, the Knicks run their stuff at full speed, at full throttle. I think, I mean, Tom Thibodeau is just wired that way. Like, you're going to do it right, you're going to do it hard, you're going to do it fast. But 
I think they also understand the limitations of what their personnel is. So they have to create any type of advantage that they can. That's setting those screens hard. That's, as you mentioned, like starting those actions on the right side of the floor, um, even throwing an empty corner in there so you can really maximize the space that you're operating with and force the defense into uncomfortable positions. They are just hammering the margins. Yep. And that is so much of regular season basketball. It really is like being able to hammer those margins and being able to, like we talked about, like DeAndre Ayton, just like rolling hard to the rim. Like, do you just play hard if you have like a requisite talent level with like the Knicks have like a requisite talent level? They are not mm-hmm. to me one of the 10 most. They're not one of the 20 most talented teams in the NBA. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Like 18, 20 range somewhere in there. Yeah. But because they just play hard and because Thibodeau has them like rolling, I kind of think that they're a team nobody wants to play in the regular season. And I think that they have a chance to kind of just get wrecked in the playoffs a little bit. I'm sorry, Knicks fans. But you know what? (laughs) I've been kind of thinking that it was going to change at some point in the regular season. It hasn't. And Tom Thibodeau and uh, Julius Randle and RJ Barrett and everyone involved deserve an immense amount of credit. Uh are you are you holding out on R.J. Barrett Island with me? Because I, I never left, and I, I'm very happy that I never left R.J. Barrett Island. I think it was kind of weird how quickly people jumped off of R.J. Barrett. It's bizarre. Like he was he was flat out bad as a rookie, but like so much of that was a he's a rookie. Like rookies are typically bad, and also like it just feels like maybe it's because it's fun to troll Knicks fans. And, like, I'm not as guilty as that as others, but I am, you know, I'm occasionally guilty of it. Like, maybe it's just that. But, like, the context of what R.J. Barrett had around him, like, on and off the floor for just going to the coaching staff, like, it was just a very odd thing to ignore. Like, he was playing in a phone booth. And, like, even now, like, he's playing in, like, a car garage, maybe. (laughs) But, like, the talent was always kind of there. Like, even during those Knicks games last year, like you would see a handful of high level passing flashes from him. Yep. He could get to his spots. It's, you know, the paint's cramped and then he has his own like vertical explosion issues, but like he had some craft. He had to handle to get to his spots, had the strength to kind of dislodge some guys. The talent was kind of clear. The context just needed to improve a little bit and it has improved a little bit. And now he's getting slightly easier looks. He's improved on his own, like the three point shot. Um, I think I just mentioned it in a piece I wrote on Wednesday. He's shooting something like 45% from three since the All-Star break. Like, I don't know if he's that as a shooter, but even if you back that up to like January or so, like he's been high 30s, low 40s for a while on like moderate volume. So like you improve the shot, you improve the spacing around him, and now you see this little bit of a leap. So yeah, I I don't know if I'd say I'm like on RJ Barrett Island. I just never thought he was as bad as he looked in his rookie season. So it's nice to see him bounce back the way he has. RJ Barrett was the second highest usage guy on a like 20 win Knicks team last year that had a non-shooting Julius Randle, a non-shooting point guard in Alfred Payton, a non-shooting respected guy in Mo Harkless. Um, Reggie Bullock was not shooting last year. They played a ton of Mitch Robinson as like a roller toward the rim, Mm non-shooter. 
Um, Kevin Knox, weirdly, like, has improved as a shooter. He hasn't really improved at anything else, but, like, he's shooting 39% from three in his uh, 30 games or whatever he played in the early portion of this season. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, last year he played most of their season and shot, like, 32% from three. Um, Taj Gibson played a ton of minutes and is, like, a total non-shooter. RJ Barrett is a driver who is surrounded by a complete lack of shooting who was the second highest usage guy on a team as a teenager. And oh, by the way, they fired their coach after like 25 games. Like why are, why were people just like not throwing away that season as if it didn't matter at all for RJ Barrett's development? <laughs> like it's, it matters, but like, it's not gonna actually be reflective of what he is as a player. It, it was bizarre that people like went down the road of trying to tear down RJ Barrett uh, very quickly and very early. Like maybe it's a Duke thing like that. That could be it. Cause it felt like people were kind of excited when Zion Williamson was worse than he wasn't even worse when he played, but like when Zion Williamson was not quite as good as John ja Morant uh, mm-hmm. in terms of like overall value last year, like people were very quick to have the conversation of, Oh, is John ja Morant, uh, John Moran is better than Zion Williamson. It's like, no, watch them play when Zion played last year and mm. understand that Zion was coming off of an injury, uh, entering a weird situation in New Orleans where it seemed pretty clear they were about to fire their coach and like just wasn't even in basketball shape and he still did what he did. Uh, I think that people are way too quick to not understand the context of kind of what, what's happening around these guys as they enter the NBA. And uh, that's how mistakes get made. Maybe let's put it that way. Yeah, it, it was just, it was a very odd dynamic. Like it reminded me and they're not similar players in the situations aren't one-to-one, but like, it kind of reminds me of what happened with Devin Booker early in the Phoenix stint. Yeah. To where it's just like, hey, if this guy's supposed to be this good, or in Booker's case, like if he's putting up these kind of numbers, why isn't this team winning? Clearly that means he stinks and we're all just overrating him. And it's just like, hey, watch him play. Like you can see the marginal improvements in his game. I mean, you can just see the flat out talent level with Booker. And you can also look at the context around him and understand why he may put up numbers and they don't win. That doesn't mean he's the reason they're losing. It just means he can't overcome everything else. And that's fine. And with Barrett, like, he had his own woes, like the jumper was a little bit broken. Again, the vertical pop at the rim isn't elite. So that reflected on the inefficiency, but also he played in a phone booth with two different coaches and just a weird roster around him. Like there's only so much blame that should have been assigned to him. So I think we all, I mean, just collectively, we could we could do a better job of like examining what's actually happening and trying to parse right. things out that way instead of just kind of throwing guys away early. The rest of this little middle portion of the East is fascinating because we have Atlanta, who is a half game behind New York. We have Boston, who's a game behind New York. And then we have Miami, who's a game and a half behind New York. Who do we think is the team that gets left out of the just top six and ends up being directly into the playoffs and who ends up being the team out of those four that has to play in the plan. Uh, I've been struggling with this all year long. Like I'll start here. I have no idea what to make of Miami. And like, that's the team that I'll watch more than anyone. Their offense has been so frustrating to watch. And like, there's context there with COVID and with injuries and, you know, eventually midseason trades and, you know, to bring in Victor Oladipo, he's working himself in and then he gets hurt. Goran Dragic has been in and out and he's old. So it's just, it's just been a lot of things going on with them. 
I would like to say in terms of the pedigree, in terms of what they have on the roster, and they've played better as of late, I would like to say Miami's going to get in there. But I just don't know what to believe with them. Like Boston's starting to play a little bit better. Atlanta's, I think Atlanta may be the team to slide just because you got the ankle injury from Trey Young. Um, Clint Capella is Clint Capella's probably been the most underrated big in the league this year. Yep. Um, he's been in and out of the lineup. So maybe it's Atlanta because they slide. I mean, at this point, I'm not sure why you wouldn't have faith in the Knicks continuing to rack up regular season wins. Like, this late into the season, the formula is working. So it's hard to foresee them just kind of falling apart. Um, Boston's playing better. Jason Tatum has been on a heater as of late. Like, it's between Atlanta and Miami for me in terms of who's going to slide out. Yeah. And I think it is going to be Atlanta, and it's not due to the fault of Atlanta, I don't think. I think it's more just because I trust these other three teams more. Miami, like you said, I mean, they've won their last three. I mean, they just kicked the shit out of San Antonio. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that was a, uh, was kind of a, kind of a real beating, especially in the second half of that game. Uh, it, it looked like Jimmy Butler just went like, fuck this, this is done. And then uh, Bam Adebayo was really good in that game. I think Bam's been a little bit better offensively as of late. Like, I was really excited early in the season with how he improved his shot creation ability a little bit more. And mm-hmm. then in the middle portion of the season, like, it seemed when Jimmy came back, he was struggling a little bit to, like, balance, okay, I was the guy for a little while now Jimmy's back. Jimmy's the guy. Like, where do I fit in? It felt like almost like he was trying to defer to Jimmy mm-hmm. more when it was clear that Jimmy was trying to, like, bring him out more and just say, like, no, do your thing. You're the guy now. Not like you're the guy, but like you're um, you should feel comfortable doing your own thing. We trust you to go get your own offense. Right. And that little like push pull is fascinating to me. And I think that I loved their trade deadline because I love the idea of taking a flyer on Victor Oladipo. And then on top of it, like I like the idea of going to get more floor spacing, particularly with like, go get a Nemanja Bialica who can theoretically space the floor for you. Um, and hopefully like add that little dimension next to a bam out of bio. Um, this team works best oftentimes when Jimmy Butler and bam are just surrounded by a crazy amount of shooting. Because mm-hmm. I think that Jimmy and Bam together is going to give you enough defensive value um, because they just demand such a high level of like intensity and connectedness and togetherness on the floor. So when those guys are out there, I think that it's going to be fine defensively and then going out and getting more shooting to add to Duncan Robinson, to Tyler Hero, to hopefully a healthy Goran Dragic going forward. I think that that was the right route. And I think that they're going to keep getting better as the season goes on, as they keep getting more comfortable with each other again. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the hope at least. And you know, just going back to Hero really quickly, uh, just had 22 against San Antonio and he has been flat out awful on offense over the past couple of weeks. And they've, you, I mean, ideally, you don't want him or Goran Dragic to play poorly. Like, no team wants their players to play poorly. But with the guard room that they have, you can afford to have one guy slumping. Yep. You can't have Dragic looking like a shell of himself and also Tyler Hero just struggling to knock down shots. I think um, I referenced him on the dunker spot last week. He was shooting. He had like a four-game stretch where he shot 8% from three. Like, that can't happen. So if he's able to pick it up, that takes a little bit of pressure off of Goran Dragic. And we still don't know if Victor Oladipo is going to come back. Um, just from what I've read, 
the Heat seem optimistic that he's going to be back at least for the playoffs. So I've you know, obviously got to wait for something official on that. But if he is going to come back, that takes a little bit of pressure off of everyone because now you don't need both. You don't need all those guys firing all cylinders. If you can get something from two of them, with you, what you get with Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo and Duncan Robinson or whatever, then that's enough. Like I've, I'm, I'm just in a really weird space with Miami because it's hard to bet against the pedigree when you have Jimmy and Bam, when you have Eric Spoelstra on the sidelines, and when you have depth. But it's also kind of hard to ignore what you've seen from the offense specifically all year long. And that's with injury, when healthy, post-trade deadline, pre-trade deadline. It's just been sluggish and inconsistent. So, I don't know. It's a it's a very interesting dynamic going on down there. The other team in this mix here is Boston. I, I don't know that we need to really talk about Atlanta until we see like how serious this Trey Young thing is. Like I know Trey tweeted last night that... Um, you know, it, it's not like a serious, serious injury, but if he misses the next seven games, like that might play a very tangible, like important part on this playoff race, uh, right. despite not being like a serious thing. Um, Boston is interesting to me just because they're another team that just hasn't had a free run yet. Um, this is another team that I haven't watched a ton of in the last four weeks like i've probably watched them once in the last four weeks i mean where where are we at with this because like i know yvonne fournier has only played like a couple games jalen brown's out but like do, do we have any increased faith in boston compared to what was happening a month ago uh a little bit and that's mostly because it feels like jason tatum has made yet another leap um, just going back to the the margin thing that we were talking about with the Knicks, like I feel like Tatum is really starting to hammer, like he's really starting to get an understanding of what he wants to do offensively. It just feels like there have been like drastic shifts. Like he was mostly an off-ball catch-and-shoot guy early in his career. Then he was an ISO guy, dabbled with some pick-and-rolls last year and kind of do a little bit of everything. And now it's the floater is getting a little bit better. He's finishing through contact at the rim a little bit better and getting to the rim a little bit more. Like, he's continued to refine the sidestep three to either side. You, I mean, he already has the pull-up against drop-down. So now he is becoming, and on top of that, he's now leveraging all of that to improve as a passer. Like, he's thrown more corner skips over the past couple of months than I think he threw all season long last year. Mm-hmm. So even with question marks around like Kimball Walker or the inconsistency in the front court and things like that. Again, you mentioned Evan Fournier hasn't really played since Boston acquired him. Jason Tatum is developing into the kind of star, or he's developing into a superstar, and those type of guys that can score at all three levels can also complement that with passing. That's the kind of talent that can kind of supersede some of the flaws that you have around you. So I'm not sure if it's me having a bunch of faith in Boston more so than saying, hey, Jason Tatum might just be good enough to where a lot of this stuff won't matter. Okay, so the last little thing I want to go through here, uh, the play-in tournaments. Who do we think makes the play-in tournament out of the Eastern Conference? Because Atlanta, we should feel pretty good about getting there. Um, Or one of the, you know, New York, Atlanta, Boston, Miami group. We've got Charlotte, Indiana, and Washington is the other three spots right now. And then we've got Mm -hmm. Toronto and Chicago, both of whom, like, want those spots. Like, it's not like they're... um, you know, like Sacramento, who's five games back of those spots and doesn't really have a shot. Like, it feels like the West is pretty set 
with who the play-in mm-hmm. tournament is going to be. Like, it's going to be one of Portland uh, or Dallas in all likelihood, and then it's probably going to be Memphis, Golden State, and San Antonio, barring some sort of like crazy late season run here from one of these teams and a swoon from one of Dallas and Portland. The East is interesting though because Toronto obviously I think wants to make this play in tournament. Chicago, I mean fuck, like it would be a disaster if they don't make the play in tournament yeah. after moving uh Wendell Carter and two firsts for Nikola Vucevic. How do we think this play in tournament is gonna shake out, especially now with Charlotte potentially getting LaMelo Ball back? I think I think Charlotte is safe. Washington Washington just goes on these weird streaks to where you just kind of check the standings like, oh, wait, they've won like six or seven. What's going on here? Right. And then they kind of fall off the face of the earth for a little bit, and then they make another similar run. But, like, if there's a team I'm eyeing to fall out, I think it's Indiana at this point. Yeah. Just because they just haven't been able to get it together in terms of injuries. Like, Sabonis yep. has missed some time. Turner's missed some time. Broughton's missed some time. They acquired Levert, and you had to kind of wait for him to get back. There are just so many moving parts with Indiana. I think I just trust Washington. Like, they're going to have at least one of Russell Bill. Like, I don't envision both of those guys getting hurt at the same time or both of those guys resting at the same time, anything like that. And Washington's playing well. They've been, they've been pretty solid post-All-Star break, period. Like, they've just been good. And as Toronto has gotten healthier, they've started to look better. So I guess if I'm just looking at the playing in the East, like I think it's going to be, you know, one of Atlanta, New York, Boston, Miami. It'll be Charlotte. I think they hold serve. And then I think it's Washington and Toronto. Like, I just don't know how to feel about Chicago at this point. Yeah. Like, I, I shoot him a little bit of bail since Zach Levine has missed time with the health and safety protocols. But even before he went out, I think they were, what, something like three and eight before Levine went out after the Vucevic straight. Well, like, they it's not messy, like, yeah. Yeah, like, the the lineups have been weird. The defense has been very bad. The offense has been kind of middling. Like, I like what I've seen in terms of chemistry building with Vucevic and Levine. I like the way that Chicago uses Vucevic, but it just doesn't seem like they've tried to establish any real counters outside of those two creating. And, like, it's fine to have those two as your bedrock, because it should unlock a lot of things just in terms of the gravity they have as scores. But the offense doesn't seem very creative at all. The guard play is so erratic. So now you lose Levine, and it's Vucevic post-ups and what else? Uh, so I, I, w- I will say, like, I watched a little bit of their game against Cleveland uh, from earlier this week. I think it mm-hmm. was, it wasn't, was it last night or two nights ago? I can't remember. Um, I mean, that backcourt was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was like what are we doing here bad um just no creation whatsoever uh you know kobe white was okay in that game but even when kobe plays well it feels like he's not really like pressuring the defense to me in like a way that is difference making in the way that they need him to be without zach levine on the court um i mean colin sexton and darius garland wrecked them like yeah. absolutely annihilated them in pick and roll. Like, it was hideous. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's a, they're, they're, I just don't know where Chicago goes. I really don't. Like, I was optimistic about them after the trade because my initial thought was, hey, you get Vucevic at the five, like, that's an obvious downgrade defensively from Wendell Carter, but, like, you know, they have smart, you know, they have a smart guy in Thaddeus Young to throw it to four. They have a bunch of length with, like, Patrick Williams and stuff. Like, Thomas Sadoransky isn't a lockdown defender, but he's a 6'6 guy that can 
dig and recover and kind of help. So, like, hey, if they can place some drop, rotate tightly, maybe they're like the 17th, 18th best defense with Vooch, and then the offense is a heater, they make the run to play in or whatever. But nothing has really come together. And now they're missing their best player. And now you kind of need Kobe White not just to score, but to help run the offense. And that's never been him. He he is the type of guy that he either needs to just have the offense as like a six man, or he needs to play off someone to where the reads are simplified and he can just kind of yep. play against a, a rotating defense and kind of burn teams with pull-ups or whatever. And now he's just kind of thrust into a main ball handler role. And I don't think he's ready for it for the, not like for a playoff caliber team. I don't like the, <laughs> the bizarre thing is like this team just has no chance defensively in the front court. It feels like when Thaddeus Young is off the court. And by the way, in that, uh, game that I watched against Cleveland, Thaddeus Young got in like crazy foul trouble and played 17 minutes. So we we got some real Cristiano Felicio minutes in that game, despite yeah. the fact that they have Nikola Vucevic, Daniel Tice, and Lowry Markinen. Please, Billy, you don't have to do this. Like <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Tice can play center. Um, like Lowry Markinen can play center in a pinch. Like I think I would trust. Al Farouk Aminu to play center more than I would trust Cristiano Felicio <laughs> at this point. What a signing that was. Good lord. And to the Laurie marketing point, are the Bulls even sure what position he plays? No. Because it's, no. it's been very weird to see him, like, legitimately play the three I, on I, either end. Like, I don't get it. I mean, there have been a couple of times, like, they don't do this regularly, like, it's not a thing, but, like, They've thrown out Markin and Tice Vucevic together, and I've been like, what is happening? We are not in 1986 right now. <laughs> like, how, how is this a thing? How is this a thing that, like, a coach is trotting out there as if it has potential to even have a shot? Like, I, I'm, like, trying to pull up, like, numbers right now to see how often this has happened but i feel like it's happened like for small very short stretches uh in a few of the games i've watched recently with them and i'm just like how is this happening right now like this can't be real life whenever i see all three of those guys out there together uh as if it's 1986 and like what are we doing here it's just been very weird like i've struggled to strike the balance between hey, maybe I underestimated how tough it's going to be for Billy Donovan to kind of juggle the rotations decisions with such a different roster in the middle of the season. Yep. But, like, there's a gap between that and the first game you have with Vucevic, you start him and Laurie Markkinen together. Right. And it's like, what do you think is going to happen to the front line if that's your starting front line? So, like, it... I think it's somewhere in the middle where it's it's been tough for him to try to figure out what lineups work, especially now he's dealing with injuries, dealing with health and safety protocols with Levine. But also there have just been some flat-out boneheaded decisions that didn't make sense, like, on the surface. Yeah, like, some of these lineup calls are just very weird and strange and I, I don't know I don't know what to do with them. You know what I mean? Like, it it like makes me question like how did billy donovan like win two national titles at times in college like and i feel bad saying that because i think that he's generally like pretty good at doing things but i I don't know man the whole thing is very 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 bizarre to me um 
Okay, Nikias, I'm going to give you the floor. Give me, like, before we get out of here, give me just, like, one final, like, crazy take prediction for the end of the season here. Uh, I've been kind of sitting on it. Ooh, so like, here we go. Like, I think the very obvious caveat is that you have to watch and see how healthy the Lakers are. Yep. But, like, give me the Suns to the final stop. Ooh. I I think I'm getting I think I'm getting pretty close to there. This is I, I love it first and foremost. I absolutely love it. I needed this take. Uh so you would take Phoenix over the Clippers right now. I would take Phoenix over the Clippers, yes. Why? I think I just trust like just that that backcourt is just absurd. And I think I don't know. I, I struggle to see the Clippers scoring enough against Phoenix. I think Phoenix matches up well enough defensively to kind of hinder what the Clippers want to do. And I kind of trust the shot making of Paul and Booker and then just the pure physicality that DeAndre Ayton is playing with now as a guy that can kind of beat switches if the Clippers want to go small. I, I, I don't, I'm just, I will admit that I may be irrationally high on Phoenix right now, but I just watch them and get more comfortable with what I'm seeing. Like, none of this feels fluky to me. Like, they're playing a playoff brand of basketball anyway in terms of the pace, just in terms of the way that they navigate actions on both ends of the floor. I, I'm i just very high on what to do. Like, they've been top five in half-court offense and defense for clean the glass all year long. Like, that's a, a stat that I've cited before. Like, I just love what I'm seeing from them. So... The reason I think to be a little bit bullish on that is they have three guys that they can throw at Kawhi and Paul George. They have Mikael Bridges, Jay Crowder, and they can throw Torrey Craig at at them now. And like, Mm. look, Torrey Craig is not an incredible basketball player by any stretch, by NBA standards, certainly by normal human standards. Torrey Craig is an incredible basketball player, but Torrey Craig is a really good, effective defender. And in like the like little bit of time I've seen him play with Phoenix, like it feels like he's found his role just like finding and timing cuts offensively mm-hmm. really well to where, yeah, you can sort of ignore him, but you can't like completely fall asleep when you're def- like defending him because he will hit you very quickly with something. Um, then on top of it, they do have DeAndre who they can at least like throw out there in switches right kind of like what mm-hmm. you were saying and chris paul is gonna battle in those switches at least against Kawhi leonard and paul or uh yeah paul george like i get it honestly like i i can't i, I think i would take the clippers to be honest just because i think that they're kind of a buzzsaw and ridiculous and um mm-hmm. incredible and i trust Kawhi and paul george more than i trust chris paul and devin booker um especially whenever you can put Kawhi and Paul George in a lineup that is basically pristinely spaced at all times offensively. Hmm. But man, it's a compelling case. I actually think it is like a pretty compelling case that Phoenix could uh, come out of the West. And we didn't even talk about Utah. Like, I'm sorry, Utah Jazz fans, but <laughs> like your, your team remains just very good, but like they're good to a boring extent. You know what I mean? I get it, like, and I've enjoyed watching Utah this year, like, it's gonna sound like some cheap compliments at the end of the year, but genuinely, like, they have been an, an enjoyable watch. Yeah. Like, 
uh, like we talked about some of the subtle improvements that Jason Tatum's made to round out his game. Like Donovan Mitchell has had a lot of that same dynamic offensively. Totally. So <clears throat> I just find it hard. Like I've just seen too many games from them against primary switching teams, or at least among those playoff teams that switch against them. And there, there are just there are still these lulls that happen that may not matter too much in that game. But I look in the playoff series like, okay, so what happens against a Phoenix to where they're like not just switching, but these are big. We're going to switch this particular action. We're going to switch at this time because this guy doesn't like to do this type deal, right? And like Donovan Mitchell still remains the only guy that I really trust again year long, but it just feels like a lot to trust him with without anyone else to really take pressure off. Gets to the rim a ton either. I just, I don't know. Like I just want to see a little bit more from Utah in that type of setting to feel more comfortable about them because they are really, really good, but it's just... I don't know. Like them against switching is kind of where I have pause. It's not even that I have pause. It's I just think they're boring to talk about. Like I think they're a really good team, but they're just like not all that interesting to talk about to me because they've been the same the entire year. Like they take a crazy amount of threes. They make a crazy amount of threes. Uh, The one thing that I think maybe goes a little bit underrated is they do draw a lot of fouls. Like they're really good at getting to the free throw line and mm-hmm. getting points that way. Um, so it's not just like a one dimensional offense. Like it's a well spaced offense where Donovan is really good at getting to the basket, and then Rudy will get fouled uh, rolling to the rim because you just kind of have to. Otherwise, you're giving up two free points. Um, they do do like a pretty good job of putting pressure maybe in like the mid range to basket area, as opposed to just like purely on the basket. Um, in addition to the three point range in a way that goes like a little bit under discussed um, offensively. Like I, I think that they're great. And I think that Rudy Gobert is, you know, keying an incredible defensive top five defense, this team there this year. It's very interesting. Like I'm, I think that they're great. They're just kind of the same that they've been the entire year. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. If anything, I think it's a compliment. But like we're at the point now where it's April 22nd. And I just don't know if there's much new to say about them. You know what I mean? Like they didn't make any interesting trade deadline moves. Like they didn't. Um, they're not doing anything tangibly different. They have been very lucky with the injury bug this year outside of uh, like a few games that Mike Conley has missed here and there. And the fact that Yudoka Azabuke has like a bad ankle injury, but like it, it's fine. You know what I mean? Like it, it just is what it is. Yeah, they're, they're very good. They've been very healthy. Like they've been elite on both sides of the ball. I just have questions. I think that's kind of what it <laughs> <laughs> just kind of what it boils down to for for me. All right, Nikias, this has been great. Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people about your podcast. Uh, do all of the pitching necessary here. I will do the best that I can. You can find my writing at basketballnews.com. You can find me on Twitter at NikaiasNBA, a podcast that I co-host with Steve Jones Jr., former assistant coach and video coordinator in the NBA. It's called The Dunker Spot. You can find that on Apple, on Spotify, Google, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. It's X's and O's heavy. We just kind of survey the league see what's happening and why um there are a lot of puns from steve there are a lot of sides from me but we have a lot of fun talking about hoops so check it out if you haven't already yeah look let, let me give a little pitch for the dunker spot i was telling you this before the show um i don't really listen to a ton of basketball podcasts to be honest like whenever i'm not watching basketball like i really try and like you know 
watch movies. I think people realize that about me that listen to the show. And, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts about movies. I listen to um, podcasts about other things. Like, I listen to true crime podcasts regularly. So I don't have a lot of time to, like, listen to basketball podcasts. The Dunker Spot is one of the few that, like, I really actively seek out and listen to every episode. I think it's really, really good. I would absolutely implore you guys to give it a shot. Um, that's been Nikias Duncan. This has been Sam Vicini. This is the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We will be back uh, over the weekend with a fun little project that Matt Penny and I are doing. Uh, but until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.